Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is the programme about Ireland's maritime development, our relationship with the sea around this island nation and our maritime culture, history and tradition. I have 50 years journalistic experience in many sectors of the media and wonder why the national media, print and broadcast, doesn't give the marine sphere extensive coverage. Coastal communities are facing big economic problems, heavy job losses, due to the government's plan to cut the size of the Irish fishing fleet. The effects of decommissioning will be as bad as major factory closures in urban centres, which would get big media coverage. So why not for the problems of the coastal communities? A. O'Donnell is Chief Executive of the Irish Fish Producers Organisation. It's the longest established fish producers representative organisation in the country. What we're faced with is for the whitefish fleet, uh, up to a third of that fleet will be decommissioned permanently under the decommissioning scheme once it's concluded this year. That's going to have very significant impacts on coastal communities generally, on employment, on the supply of seafood, but also on things like the service industries that support these vessels. This is a permanent blow to these communities. They are coastal, they are peripheral, and there's a very important social dimension to all of this. That social dimension doesn't seem to be getting into the public mind. Am I correct in that? I don't see as much concern as there would be if it was hitting another industry. Yes, I mean, for, for our coastal communities, the seafood sector is similar to, for example, a large software plant in the capital. Seafood and fishing and fishing communities and the industry generally underpin a whole range of social activities. These are sometimes intangible and hard to quantify. But certainly the decommissioning of the fleet is going to have a long-term impact on our coastal communities. A. O'Donnell, CEO of the Irish Fish Producers Organisation. Wouldn't that make you think, why so little attention paid to the crisis facing our coastal communities? The RNLI is an independent voluntary organisation. Will that ever change? Anna Classen is the first woman to lead the service in Ireland. She comes from a Donegal fishing background and as head of region in Ireland, I met her at its Irish headquarters in Swords County, Dublin for our Newsmaker feature interview. I asked about the operational independence of the service, its liaison with state marine rescue agencies, recruitment of volunteers, and how technological evolution may change its future. There was a time when women were not considered for leading roles in the service. 11 or 12% of our lifeboat crew in Ireland are women, but uh, we need more. And I think we need more inclusion, we need more uh, diversity. Balance is everything in life. And, you know, in the past, and many moons ago, uh, some people thought that women were bad luck on a boat. 
And I think we're way past that now. And with my own fishing background, there's women in the fishing industry, there's women in the wind farm industry, there's women that are, are right across every sector of our maritime community. And that should be celebrated. And because we bring something different. It's not better or worse, it's just different. And that perspective has a value. And so I, I want to encourage more women into the maritime sector and I want to understand what we need to do as an organisation to allow women to come forward into the RNLI. That is one aspect of the RNLI. The other is is a vast organisation. When I look at it, looking throughout Ireland, more and more stations have been opened. There has to be a limit to what an organisation voluntarily or with the cost of boats can eventually do. And the way we look at this is that where is the risk? Let's start there. So there's so much data collected nowadays right around the coast of Ireland and the UK. And we compile all of that data and we say, where is the risk? And we may find that there's still communities where there is risk that hasn't been addressed. But is there another way we can address that risk that isn't about a boat? Is it water safety? Is it engaging with the community? Is it giving different tools? Some of the, for instance, uh, one of the things that's been done in the southeast coast of England is training with throw bags. The communities, the bar communities, the lounge communities, we've trained the bouncers how to use throw bags so that if somebody's in the river or somebody's in the sea, that there is this piece of equipment that they can launch that will allow somebody to stay buoyant in the water until they're rescued. So there's loads of tools out there that we can use to mitigate risk that isn't a three million pound lifeboat. But where a three million pound or a two million pound or a you know, hundred thousand pound lifeboat is required, the RNLI will absolutely consider that. But technology is moving forward. So we are constantly trying to look at other solutions and to innovate so that we can provide mitigation for the risk that we see. That's very interesting because you're actually reaching outside what the public uh, perception is, which is of a lifeboat and a lifeboat crew in a station. So you're reaching beyond that in the interest of safety? Yes, because our job uh, and our charter says we save lives at sea, but there's many ways to do that. There's other things that we can do. And indeed, working with our colleagues in Water Safety Ireland, the Irish Coast Guard, what we need to do is look at the risk, look at the data, what is it telling us, and then sit down and say, how can we provide a solution for that community to help them save lives? And remember, we provide the tools to wonderful voluntary communities to save lives. The lifeboat stations have changed dramatically over recent years. I remember old ones with water dripping down the insides of them. The quality of the rescue has never changed in terms of the preparedness of volunteers to be there. So there must be a lot of trust in the concept of the RNLI as seen by volunteers coming forward, as seen by the public giving you money because you depend a lot on subscriptions. First of all, we're, we're, we're totally funded uh, by the public and a lot of our uh, income is generated through legacies. But you mentioned a word there, trust, and that's really important to me because if you're a lifeboat person and you're heading out to sea on that boat, there's a couple of things you need to do. First of all, you need to want to do it. 
you need to be trained and you need to believe in your training and you need to trust that you have the competency to do what you're being asked to do. You need to trust your tools. You need to trust the boat and you need to trust the equipment that you've been given. You need to trust the leadership, you need to trust the support, you need to trust everything that we do right down the chain because it's us that provide that support to you if you're going out there. And if we build that trust and if that trust is there, then we, through the staff cohort and all of the supports that we give to a lifeboat station and indeed our lifeguard units, which serve in Northern Ireland, then if you are that volunteer and you're heading into that water and into that, onto that boat, you do that competently and confidently because you have trust in the systems and the support that sit behind you. And that's my role. That's my role as head of region in Ireland, to make sure that our crews head to sea competently and confidently because the systems that I am responsible for in Ireland, the support systems, all of it, is in the right place at the right time to give those crews what they need. That trust is reflected also, I think, in the independence the RNLI has always shown for its own operation, while it liaises with many other rescue organisations, and there have been suggestions that there should be mergers and so forth. The RNLI has always been proud of trusting in its own independence. Is that going to continue? Yes, that is very definitely going to continue. And it's important that it does continue. It's important for our crews, it's important for the casualty. So let me give you an example of how that independence works because go back to what I talked about and how we place lifeboats around our coastline and our inland waters. We're looking at risk. We're looking at the risk that is presented in a particular community or a geographic area. We're not looking for good PR. We're not looking for uh, kudos. We're looking purely at risk. And if that risk requires a lifeboat to mitigate it, then the RLI will move heaven and earth to get a lifeboat into that community, working with the community. But now as technology moves on, we're looking for communities to place a different kind of trust in us. We're looking for communities to say, OK, what can you do for us that will help us with our water safety in this particular area? Because, you know, paddle boarders, there's swimmers, the risk is changing. And the risk, an awful lot of the risk is within 10 miles of our coastline. So what are the vessels of the future? What are the tools of the future that we need to mitigate that risk? These are the questions I'm asking myself. In that future, and as you say, you have team meetings regularly, you obviously have to look at the operation that may, perhaps over the years, make changes. You may have to move on. There may be stations that aren't used as they should be because rescues happen, communities move, change moves. It's a constant review then you're talking about that you have to keep updating. Yes, it, that is exactly right. It is a constant review. The way we do that constant review is in consultation with each community. And that, that's really important because I, I, I have a certain set of data. The community has data. 
we need to put everything into the mix to say, okay, this is what the risk looks like. These are the tools that will mitigate that risk. And yes, sometimes decisions will be made that will be hard on the community and hard on us. But the public provide us with our funds and we must be able to look donors in the eye and say, I am spending your money wisely. I, uh, you know, this, uh, this operation is as efficient as it can be. And so we have to build trust in a lot of ways. We have to build trust with our donors and we have to build trust with our communities that do the life-saving. And for me, it's all about telling the truth. And it's all about collaboration and listening. Listening to our communities, listening to our volunteers, listening to our donors. And then pulling all of that together and sitting down and looking at people and saying, OK, I've heard. This is what I see. Now let's work together and move towards the future. But our independence is really important. And we collaborate. Our, our tasking agency, the Irish Coast Guard, um, as I said, another statutory organisation, Water Safety Ireland, we work with county councils looking for planning permission for our stations. So we work with, the, with all governments, county councils, semi-state bodies and state bodies every day. But we retain our independence by being funded by public donations. And, and as I said, 60% of those are legacies. And you do get huge support from the public. Oh, but I mean, without the public, the RNLI wouldn't be. It, it, it is really important to us that we tell our story and we share our story and we share our rescues and we share what our lifeboats are doing. Because without us telling the story, um, the public wouldn't know what they're paying for. And so our relationship with the public, our relationship with each community that is either coastal community or inshore, I mean, no matter where you are in Ireland, you're only two and a half hours away from the sea. So, you know, you've always spoke, Tom, about the island nation. We are an island nation. And, but we must also ensure that the public know that when they put their euro into the box, or nowadays, tap it, that they know they have, that creates a direct link to them. That individual who taps and donates to the RNLI is responsible in some way or another for saving a life. You come from a fishing background yourself and fishermen always provided the core of lifeboat crews. Obviously that's changing as the industry changes, as life changes. Are there enough volunteers coming forward at all aspects, both for the front line and on shore. And where are they coming from? What kind of backgrounds are they coming from? Because they're obviously not all fishing anymore. I think that's the joy of, of, of my time in this organisation, uh, in this particular role. Uh, because it's not, they don't even have maritime backgrounds. And um, it is the diversity that is now coming into the RNLI. And uh, that's very exciting. And they're coming from all walks of life. And I think the diversity that is coming along now, I'm hoping, is going to encourage even more inclusion and diversity. And that's a very exciting thing. And yes, the training bill is a little higher because they're not coming with even maritime experience. They're coming with a maritime interest. It's one thing offering training. What's really exciting about our volunteers is their willingness to put the time in 
to show up for training and to learn. They're coming from all walks of life. But the one thing that they have in common is their willingness to commit. But I've been just humbled in the stations that I've visited so far, humbled by the commitment, the energy and the enthusiasm that people have that didn't come from the sea. And it's, it's just such a humbling experience. The RLI seems to have overcome the difficulties many organisations have of reaching down to younger people. So you've got the message across to the youth? I think, again, back to that diversity thing, there's a huge array of age groups required in the RLI. And so I very much hope that we appeal across all age groups. It's just starting now into another wonderful programme. It is about leadership. And we're going to take our water safety messages into colleges. And what we're going to do is we're going to work with uh, the curriculums in third level to help them understand how to develop their own awareness and their own capability and and competence on the water. That allows for a decision-making process to happen, a leadership. We're we're, we're trying at the moment to set that up, and it is through water safety programmes like this that we change the demographic and age. There must be a great sense of pride here at headquarters of the Ireland and in yourself when you see the courage of the lifeboat crews. What's their motivation to do things like that? You talked about their willingness to go out. What drives them? They're giving something back. And I think they don't do it for thanks. They don't do it for recognition. They know that they are doing something that that is so important. And if it wasn't for them, that somebody isn't coming home to their families. And that's, in my view, a vocation. They're bringing people home that wouldn't otherwise come home. That's good enough for me. Perspectives on the future of the lifeboat service, which will be remaining independent. As Anna Klassen says, head of the RNLI in Ireland. The Celtic Mist is the flagship of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. It's Charlie Hawhey's former yacht. Modifications are planned. She rolls in a confused sea. Here's Dr Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the group. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group were donated Celtic Mist in 2011 by the Hawhey family. Celtic Mist is a very familiar sailing vessel to many mariners around the Irish coast. She is a 56-foot motor sailing vessel and has been working hard as a research and training platform for the IWDG over the last 10 years. She is run and maintained by Well and Dolph Group members in a voluntary capacity and has given many of our members new or refreshed sea legs. Since 2016, the IWDG have partnered with Glenn Newer, sailors who trained and sailed under the Glenann Sailing School, which unfortunately has now left Ireland. The chance meeting between Fierke Brollicorn of the IWDG, who has been managing Celtic Mist on our behalf since we were given her, and Seamus Fitzgerald of Glen Newer, who coordinated the Glenann Sailors, has been a huge success. We had a boat with few skippers, and Seamus had skippers and crew, but no boat. 
Since this partnership was formed, we have sailed to Iceland, circumnavigated Ireland on five occasions and ran a floating classroom education initiative. Throughout this period, people from the two groups have also worked very hard to keep Celtic Mist in good condition, a challenge for such a large vessel. Although the boat is now in great condition, in a confused sea she can turn anyone's stomach when she starts to roll. In order to make her a more effective survey platform and more comfortable for sailing, we wish to add bilge keels, which are deployed in pairs, one each side of the ship, to dampen her rolling. But to do this, we urgently need your support. The IWDG must raise up to 50% of the estimated €10,000 cost in order to book into Leonard's shipyard in Hoth, County Dublin, and make these much-needed improvements a reality. If you are in a position to support the Celtic Miss Fundraiser, or if you can spread the word via our Facebook page, we would greatly appreciate it. Go to Facebook and look up RV Celtic Mist, Irish Well and Dolphin Group. Finally, Celtic Mist is leaving Dublin as its home port after this upcoming survey season. After generous support from Waterways Island, who'd allowed us to use the Grand Canal Basin during the winter, she is to finish this summer sailing in Kilrush, County Clare and be berthed in Kilrush Marina. It's time for a fresh team to look after her and based on the West Coast, provides more opportunities to survey and promote potential marine protected areas. We would like to thank Fiak, Seamus and Mick O'Mara for all their hard work over the last few years to keep Celtic Mist ship shape and in service for the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group and the modifications needed to its flagship Celtic Mist. Now a roundup of coastal news, here's Anton O'Callaghan. Heading for its third year ashore, the wreck of the MV Alta, aground on the rocks at Ballyandrine Beach near Ballycotton in East Cork, continues to deteriorate from sea conditions. The midsection has broken away, leaving the bow and stern separately wedged on the rocks. Cork County Council says it is continuing to liaise with the Department of Transport on whether any further interventions are required, but there are no plans to remove the wreck which has been there since February 2020. Local landowners have complained about damage to their property from people going to the wreck site. The Department of the Environment has been examining the effectiveness of current management policies towards inland fisheries, as a result of which Minister Eamon Ryan says that a broader policy review is now underway and he intends to make improvements. 81 rivers will be available for salmon and sea trout fishing this year. 48 will be fully open and 33 for catch and release angling. 66 rivers will remain closed. These decisions are based on general improvements in stocks. In Galway, the County Council has agreed to consult with water sport bodies about its proposed beach bylaws, which would ban all activities apart from swimming on 24 beaches. After a lot of controversy, council officials have agreed to meet representatives from the water sport groups for discussions about the proposed bylaws. More than 40,000 lobsters were V-notched in 2022, the highest recorded since legislation began in 1995 to protect lobsters with such marks. This is a conservation measure to protect female lobsters, giving them an opportunity to spawn and replenish stock. It removes a V-shaped notch from the lobster's tail when first caught and when it has to be released. V-notched lobster, if caught again, cannot be retained or sold, but must be returned to the sea. Ian Lawler, 
BIM Development Manager, has praised fishermen for their support of the scheme. The actual number caught and released last year was 40,339. That's a lot of lobster around. Brittany Ferries will reopen its Rosslare Le Havre service for passengers from March. It has been freight only since the COVID pandemic. The ferry, Cotentin, will operate the service with a limit of 114 passengers. Irish Main Port Holdings, headquartered in Cork, has launched a new 50-tonne Ballard Pull Harbour tugboat to serve on the Shannon estuary. The 28-metre vessel was launched in December at the Ereglis shipyard on the Black Sea coast and is expected to be delivered to the Shannon estuary in May at Foynes, where Main Port operates towage services. Seven maritime area consents which allow developers to begin planning applications to board Planola for offshore wind farms have been issued by Environment Minister Eamon Ryan. They are for six Irish sea projects, Oriel Wind Park, Aklo Bank 2, Braybank, Kishbank, North Irish Sea Array, the Codling Wind Park and one in North Galway Bay called Scared Rocks. And that's this month's Coastal News Roundup. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. The offshore islands, an important part of our cultural and maritime heritage, will fight for their survival. From Inishinar Island in Clue Bay, here's the Secretary of Kogol Ilona Heron, the Islands Federation, Rhoda Twombly. The fight for the offshore islands continues. It is part of the Kogol Remit who continuously shine a light on our island's condition to ensure that challenges are met. Lack of appropriate year-round affordable housing is considered the primary hurdle to island sustainability. Neglect led to the closure of many of our islands and it is sadly possible that this will happen again without implementation of realistic sustainability plans. Planning issues are a block to those who want to build. Anecdotally, young people have been refused two and three times and they must move off island to build. In some counties, those looking for council housing have been told they must move to the mainland as they will not be accommodated on the island. Far from supporting island sustainability, government housing and planning policy is acting to speed the demise of island communities. The recently released report on housing by a UCC research team on the West Cork Islands with local consultation involved emphasizes that if the housing problems aren't resolved, there will be a threat to communities on those seven islands. The UCC team, along with Kogal and Cornelan, have conducted a housing survey across all of the offshore islands. The data from this work is being analyzed and a preliminary report is expected in February. This will be an important piece of work, which can form a starting point to housing schemes across our islands. Unfortunately, little research into the housing solutions has been conducted in consultation with islanders, and this needs to be done to formulate a housing plan into the future. Eagerly awaited is the launch of the island policy document and action plan being written by Rannoch Mayalon, while appreciative of monies granted for island projects and infrastructure, core to creating solutions to the challenges that have faced the islands for generations, is that all government policies recognize the fact that one-size solutions do not fit all. Islands, by their very nature, present a cohort of variables unlike those on mainland Ireland. For our islands to survive, and indeed thrive, 
efforts must be made to think outside the box for innovative solutions paired with wide consultation with residents and organizations for their ideas on solutions. Rhoda Twombly of Cogol Ilona Heron and a lot to think about in government policy towards the offshore island communities. That concludes the January edition of Maritime Ireland, sound supervision by Justin Marr. The programme email address is tommaxweedymaritimeireland at gmail.com. That's tommaxweedymaritimeireland at gmail.com. Phone and text number 0872-555-197. 0872-555-197. Thank you for being part of the Maritime Community. Next month, we'll be with the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society to hear about three docker heroes they'd like to be remembered. Until then, our weekly newsletter is on Facebook and LinkedIn, and there's daily news on Twitter. From me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>